This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning, everybody. Return to Cold Mountain by Han Shan. Born 30 years ago, I've wandered thousands of miles from rivers that merge with the grasslands to the frontier where red dust appears. In vain, I've tried herbal medicine and sorcery, studying books and reciting history out loud. Today, I return to Cold Mountain with a stream as my pillow, cleansing my ears. So this is a uh, new translation uh, of a new book that's about to come out from Shambhala Publications, um, uh, poems of Han Chan. Um, and I was very excited when I saw that because the translation is by Kaz Tanahashi. And when Dharma is translated, it makes uh, enormous difference who's doing the translations. Enormous. Um, I've related trying to understand uh, Dogen Shobogenzo, have some sense of it in English when the initial translation was put out by Japanese Roshi, assisted by um, American college students, and how, um, let's just say I couldn't make heads or tails of it, aside from the Dharma subtlety of it. Uh, so when someone who has uh, a deep sense of clarity, such as Kaz Tanahashi, translates, I deeply respect that. Um, so Han Shan, um, circa probably late 700s, uh, semi-legendary figure, um, had two companions, Feng Khan and Shitei, um, whose names translate as Big Stick and Pickup. I, I don't know the context of that, but they were all very legendary. Uh, Han Shan is really an iconoclastic poet, unique uh, individual, kind of claimed by both Taoist and Zen Buddhists as part of the heritage. Um, what we know about his life is <clears throat> he, he probably came from a privileged uh, civil servant class, uh, but he left his family and wealth at a young age and um, took up the life of a hermit poet and settling in a remote cave beneath a rocky overhang on Cold Mountain and wrote poems of Cold Mountain. And uh, he left his poems written on rocks that's where he wrote his poems. Um, and so Han Shan actually means cold mountain or cold cliff. There are many stories about him and his antics. Um, he and his companions particularly poke fun of the uh, uh, monks at a nearby temple, Tendai Temple. Um, 
and in their own way and in their foolishness enacted the Dharma. Uh, and they were considered very realized. Um, in, the, in the legends, among the legends, he does not die, he disappears. And a, a high official is said to have finally recognized uh, that these uh, enlightened poems that were appearing um, were Han Shan's, and despite the crazy image he cultivated, um, and that he was a, a great spiritual being. And um, so the official sent several people to his isolated retreat to bring him back. And seeing them approach, the story goes, he wedged himself into a crack within the cliff wall, crying out, thieves, thieves, thieves are coming. And then disappeared into that crack and uh, was never seen again. Um, so his poems were collected uh, and um, along with the poems of his companions, and it's not always clear who wrote what, and they began to circulate. Uh, he's also embedded in our culture uh, via Jack Kerouac, who in Dharma Bums uh, embodied uh, Gary Snyder uh, as one of the characters in Dharma Bums, if you're familiar with that seminal work, um, as a representation of Han, Han Shan, uh, Gary Snyder, who's still alive, um, uh, remarkable poet, uh, Zen teacher, Zen student, could have been a Zen teacher if he wanted to, chose not to, uh, and has translated uh, Han Chan's poems in his own uh, work. So just to give you a little more sense of Han Shan, uh, of his poetry, here's another poem. Once my back wetted to the solid cliff, I sat silently bathed in the full moon's light. I counted there 10,000 shapes, none with substance, save the moon's, the moon's own glow. The pristine mind is empty as the moon. The pristine mind is empty as the moon, I thought, and like the moon freely shines. By what I, but, but what I know of moon, I know the mind each mirror to each profound a stone. So he starts the poem that returned to Cold Mountain with born 30 years ago. In Buddhism, it's a given that your birth, the circumstances of your birth, your present at, presence at this time, in this place, is no accident. Um, usually within our accustomed self-referential view, we may not think of our existence uh, as, other from the, as different from the perspective of our own solitary sense of me. That's how we place ourselves. But the energies that enabled your birth as an individual are not in any manner accidental. There's causes, complicated causes, way beyond our keen, our ability to understand them. You may have been born 30 years or whatever before this moment, but the circumstances that led to your birth are very specific actions that took place in the past are taking place now 
and will take past place in the future. Past, present, and future are a single reality. And they manifest in your body and mind in this moment. Uh, a few weeks ago, I gave a talk in Fusatsu on karma and looked at how uh, karma travels in all directions, how through time and space things happen karmically to us. I'm not going to go into it at this moment, and, um, but that's simply how it is. And so these forces, these energies, which we call karma, uh, invite us to look closely through our practice, um, to pick our head off, pick our head up off our chest, and to relax and widen our vision, so that it's not so heavily concentrated just on me and my immediate environment and what I think is going on at this moment, and how I understand and judge that. And the more we study that, the more we can relate to the teaching that in, in our birth, nothing comes into being, and in our death, nothing disappears. That's a profound teaching, and it's not immediately graspable by the intellectual mind. But it's pointing at something which includes karma, and how deeply, fully interconnected we are with the universe. You, you can't take us out of the universe. You can't take us out of any event of the universe in the past, in the present, and in the future. And this is true even if within our strong sense of an independent self, which is born and which does die, we think that's all there is. But as we sit in Zazen, as we carefully learn to to study and to experience each moment of our being alive as an entirety of the moment, as the wholeness of the moment. That we start to see that this me is only a, really a temporary confabulation of circumstances of this moment that come together, that create this sense of myself at this moment, these thoughts, these emotions, these feelings, all lack of them. And that they're ever-changing. You know, try and pin yourself down, try and fix yourself, try and fix your mind when I say yourself. And, you know, good luck with that. I mean, we can put an enormous amount of energy into doing that. Um, and, you know, I, I'm thinking back to when I tried to do that in terms of practice. Um, that in the name of practice tried to fix myself as Mu or as some idea of what I should be doing. And um, it was not helpful. So we begin to see more and more that this self is an ever-changing uh, cause and effect it's never stable, its solidity is ephemeral, and it doesn't have a permanent existence. That as it's, our sense of ourself is coming into being, it's also disappearing into a new sense of ourself, which we, of course, firmly attach onto. So, 
it's helpful to see into this poem from that perspective. Born 30 years ago, I've wandered thousands of miles from rivers that merge with the grasslands to the frontier where red dust appears. So, how many miles have you wandered? Where has your journey taken you? Have you been to rivers and grasslands, cities and farms, traveled to and fro, mountaintop to plains, on physical and mental journeys? Are you traveling there now? To what end, I ask? What's your journey about? Why have you been traveling? Do you know why you've been traveling? Do you know where you're going? Do you know what you're looking for? Where is your home? Perhaps we can spin off an answer to each of these questions. And we can analyze them, we can frame them in many different frames, psychological and um, even spiritual. Um, and in a sense, if we try and answer those questions from those perspectives, and we come up with an answer, how do you know that's the answer? Is that just where we stop questioning and so yes, that's the answer, it feels like that's the answer, or is there more beneath that? We don't know. If we entered Zazen with each of these questions, I suspect we might find that whatever initial perspective that arose in asking these questions does not adequately see into the question. And especially the energy that lies beneath the question. And that's the power of Han Chan's poems. He's really, it's not in the words, it's in what's beneath the words. Of course, that's true of all good poetry. And, and specifically, what is that energy that, that comes forth from the poem? So is it helpful to, to, to deeply discern these questions as questions? And of course, there's an anxiety that also co-arises when we ask these questions, because like, how am I going to answer it? What's the answer? What's the right answer? Do I know the answer? Can I find the answer? He says, in vain I tried herbal medicine and sorcery, studying books and reciting history out loud. We try. We try with what we can find. Life from a self-perspective, the superficial perspective that we're all familiar with when we don't look any further, is, is deeply unsatisfying. And that's why we're trying. Inherently, whatever we look for, 
our equivalent of verbal medicine and sorcery and studying books and reciting history out loud may help, may distract us or may involve us, may even deeply involve us, and off we go in our life into that involvement uh, because there is a satisfaction there. And maybe we pass a lifetime with that as our focus. And perhaps something's gained and perhaps something's lost. That's each of our choices. But also to be aware, someone recently said to me, looking back on their life uh, in a spiritual context, that they had an opportunity to question something, to look at something, and they missed it at that time. Um, and now it's later. But there's always opportunity. To a dying breath, there's opportunity. That we're not trying to get some fixed answer to something. Well, what are we trying to do? So we try. And there's a safety and satisfaction in our efforts. But usually, if we're willing to continue looking, it will not sustain us in the hard reality of our life, particularly as we get older. Um, and we see just how much of the franticity of life covers up the suffering and the access to suffering that we might otherwise be willing to look directly at and thereby hopefully begin to actually inquire into and look at how that affects us, how we contribute to that, and um, by implication what can come out of that is what our place is in life. What is, what is, what is a worthwhile aspiration to live this life for and with beyond our immediate gratification or avoidance of gratification, giving our, given our psychological ability to take anything and <laughs> make, make it work for us or against us. And so we, you know, we study books. We recite history aloud. We know. We learn to know. And, uh, you know, even in spiritual practice, in the name of not knowing, we learn to know, right? We, we learn to, to navigate Zazen and Sashin and uh, working with teachers and Sangha and the Dharma and, you know, have a degree of confidence. We know. And it takes a kind of a a willingness to be courageous, not feeling courageous, to acknowledge that we are learning as we practice. We're learning about ourselves. we're learning about the nature of reality. And yet, it doesn't belong to us. It's not graspable by us. Because we are not 
graspable by us, which is another way of saying, asking just how large is this person, this body? Where does it begin and where does it end? Walt Whitman said, your facts are useful, but they're not my dwelling place. So we can use what we distract ourselves with and pursue work, pursue sense pleasure, pursue relationship, pursue diversion, pursue adventure, whatever we've so carefully attuned our personality to, in order to distract ourselves from this life of uh, being present, being home. This distract ourselves from the wholeness of our life, which is completely available to us. It's our birthright. But the tendency, I think, is to ignore or to divert ourselves from our birthright. Because to acknowledge all of ourself, we have to also acknowledge all of our pain, all of the places that we are clear that we are inadequate. We are certain we are inadequate. And if we don't feel that way this moment, just wait to the next moment and we'll create that in the next moment, because we're good at that. So we have to acknowledge that in our pain, our suffering. And when we begin to open that door, even a crack, it can be a bit overwhelming, because in acknowledging my pain in the places that I don't really want to acknowledge, but if I want to go further within myself and see where I truly live, I have to begin to acknowledge your pain. And from the ordinary perspective, you know, I'm not really interested in that. Maybe a little, maybe, you know, society says I should, so, you know, here's a dollar or a moment of my time or whatever. But there's a definite place in practice where we come right up against that. I've related this story before, but some time ago, I was in the men's dressing room and, um, at, at the monastery, and someone who'd been practicing a while said to me, you know, my, my life is good. You know, the, the practice works, it's addressed my pain. I'm wondering if I should keep going. I didn't say anything. I wasn't in a position to say anything. I do note, however, that about five years later, his wife died of breast cancer. Now, that's not an inevitability, but in that, you know, his life is his specific life and so on and so forth, but 
my own experiences, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, hang out because it's going to change. And um, maybe it won't be dramatic, but it'll be different. And we can assign a value to that or not, but it's going to be different. It's going to change. It might seem natural, and I think it is, in a sense, natural and unavoidable to want to avoid pain. And it makes sense to avoid it if there's something constructive you can do about it. But we may be confusing pain with suffering. I mean, pain is obviously unavoidable in life. And the suffering that comes along with it is is caused by maneuvers to avoid pain, which is unavoidable. You know, pain is just pain. And, um, you know, it's, we all experience this if we sit. Um, have you ever had the experience of you've gone to session of sitting and being really uncomfortable? and specific joints and places hurt. And there you are. And then you go visit the teacher and the teacher encourages you or you hear a talk and you reset, you kind of reset your determination and your aspiration. And, and it's, you're in it and you come back and you've forgotten about your pain. If you attend to it, you'll find it but it isn't so important anymore. It's just not important. It's there, but it doesn't mean that much. Not compared to the aspiration to awaken and that energy that is flowing through you, which is your energy. We've all, I think, had small and large examples of where we forget ourselves because something is much, much more important to us at that time and place. Which doesn't mean that the next day isn't a new day to work with that pain, because our mind moves on. But when we add the, the suffering, the added anguish of trying to avoid, we distance ourselves from our life, from the actuality of our life. We are isolated from our very ground of who we are. And therefore, isolated from the joys of our life as well, from the pains of our life. And life can easily become shallow and distant, dependent on what we think we want, what is outside ourselves and actually not controllable by ourselves. And so we find that our life is now dancing to energies that we're disconnected from and are always looking outside. And that does not feel good to be disconnected. You know, in the times in my life when I've felt apart from not just practice, but from the Sangha, those have been the most miserable times of my life. Incredibly painful for me. I mean, I can't speak for you, but incredibly painful. 
or when I've projected, and it is a projection, that I've been rejected by the Sangha or by what represents the Sangha to me. That also is incredibly painful, but also very inspirational to practice that, very helpful, because there's an energy there in, in that suffering. There's an energy there that I can use because in some subtle way I know that's not true, what I'm projecting, and yet I'm feeling it is true. And if I can turn that energy towards practice and have the forbearance to be with the pain, then it changes. It may not change on my immediate demand of this moment change. Why aren't you changing right now? Um, but it does change. And I get at that point that I have a power here to take everything that comes to my life and practice that and give myself to it. Many of those things I don't particularly want to practice. I don't want to be in my life, but that doesn't seem to matter. And I think it takes a great deal of intestinal fortitude to inquire about this life and to understand that as we inquire, the question changes and what we're seeing coming out of that question changes. Just because we're going deeper and deeper and there's a, a patience to that, that a, uh, a generosity and a forbearance that is helpful to, to carry with us so that the the desire to awaken or the ambition to go deeper, however you want to frame this, um, takes on its own timing that we don't have to worry about. If I'm willing to take whatever comes my way and turn it towards practice, which is a very general statement and says nothing about the immense pain that can happen in the moment of actually facing whatever comes my way, but if I'm willing to do that, to whatever extent I can do that, my life has pivoted. My life has a purpose that it did not have before, which is a purpose that helps me and in some unknowable way helps others. And it does. So these profound questions about who we are and how we're living and where we've been and where we're traveling and the investigation of them, the courage, the desperation, the curiosity to begin to look ever so carefully at our own mind because that's what this is all about. We don't have to look far, do we? Born 30 years ago, I've wandered thousands of miles from rivers that merge with the grasslands to the frontier where red dust appears. In vain, I've tried herbal medicine and sorcery, studying books and reciting history out loud. Today, I return to Cold Mountain, where the stream is my pillow, cleansing my ears. So Cold Mountain is Hanchan's home. It's your home. It's 
fundamentally who you are. It is your nature. It's also a real mountain in China. And you are real. So he's still actually talking about a journey. He's returning to Gold Mountain. And a journey is one way to understand what we're doing when we practice. Are you familiar with the 10 Oxertic pictures? They're a very famous way of describing that journey. Uh, they're up in the monastery on the wall, and shortly they'll be up here. And um, they have a picture, and they have a poem. And those two go together. They're completely entwined. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I want to go through a couple. And it is one way, and just one way, there are others, of describing this journey in a seemingly linear way, which has applicability. And yet, keep in mind, it's one way. There are others. And they dramatize the journey to Cold Mountain, where our practice enlightenment reveals who we are, where our invitation to be very ordinary, to live our ordinary life, in the most extraordinary way, waking up. So the, the poems and the, the pictures uh, show an ox and an ox herder. The ox is the representation of our awakened mind, our Buddha nature. And the ox herder, of course, is moi, each of us. The pictures at the monastery were done by Master uh, Jokuse Jikahara, who's a national treasure. I don't think he's still alive, because I think it was in his 80s when he came to the monastery and painted them. Those are the originals on the walls. Don't steal them. <laughs> um, so that was, I think, in the early 80s. So the first picture shows the ox herder desperately looking everywhere for their lost ox. They're looking. Where is my lost ox? Where am I? Where is my true home? When we are dissatisfied with life, and I hope everyone in this room is dissatisfied enough to come here to interact with the teachings, to interact with the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, and most importantly, to sit and see your own mind. So when we're dissatisfied with our life, unable to find the true happiness, that's when we begin to search for something. something that will imbue our life with wholeness. So the poem says, in the pasture of the world, so the, 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 the painting shows the ox herder looking. He's on a path, or she's on a path, and not seeing anything. 
So in the pasture of the world, endlessly push aside the tall grasses in search of the bull. Following unnamed rivers, lost upon the interpenetrating paths of distant mountains. My strength failing and my vitality exhausted, I cannot find the bull or the ox. I only hear the locusts chirping through the forest at night. The second picture shows that the ox herder has now caught sight of the tracks of the ox, bringing hope that, bringing hope. I remember when I stumbled upon the Eight Gates of Zen, and I had read a few books on Buddhism, and I actually met some people, this is in the 70s, early 70s, who were uh, doing various forms of meditation, none of which made sense to me. But, um, but when I picked up that book, which, by the way, contains, I believe, another version of the yaksherding pictures, I realized that this was a book that was different than any other book I had ever met, I ever read and met. It wasn't an intellectual description of a process. It was a manual on how. How to sit. It was a manual on how to do this. It was a manual on how to wake up. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when Daito Roshi wrote The Eight Gates of Zen, turns out it's the same thing. It's a manual. It's a manual on how to wake up. And the appeal that both those books had to me, and you know, that's a, those are pivotal moments for me in my life. When I got, there is a path, these are the tracks. It's not the ox, but these are the tracks. Now get the hell out of my way and let me go down that path. Well, that's my personality at work, but it's okay because it's in the nature, in the name of bodhicitta. And if you follow that path, no matter what your personality is, it will take you right into your personality. And that personality and that desire to awaken will meet in an awake human being just as you are, as that person, as your personality, as your karma. If you'll trust that journey, if that's the journey you want to embark on, that's an important question. So the ox herder has caught sight of the tracks of the ox. And there's hope now. And, you know, this is a common when we begin to practice. And what's also common is the care that we may take at the beginning. It, it reminds me of playing a game of chess, starting a game of chess, or checkers where you, you know, the game is just starting and you carefully, because you don't quite know what you're doing, put forward a pawn on the board or push forward a checker. And, you know, nothing's been played except your one, one piece. And you sit back and you am I doing this right? <laughs> you know, nothing else is happening. Um, you know, there's a tendency to be intrigued and you're seeing something that lies outside your own experience and does not lend itself to a quick analysis. Something is going on, and you don't know what it is. 
and it seems important. What is this? Is this for real? And sometimes you begin looking at the people who are practicing or the more senior people and picking it apart or holding it up or you know, trying to justify something in your mind that makes it connected for you. So the poem for that second one says, along the riverbank under the trees, I discover footprints. Even under the fragrant grass, I see the, the footprints. Deep in remote mountains, they are found. The traces can no longer be hidden. They can't. You're seeing with different eyes now. And it goes on from there. In the third picture, the ox herder, ox herder actually catches sight of the ox. So there's the beginning of insight there. But we don't yet understand the source of this, where this healing and power comes from. But the glimpse opens us up. The poem says, I hear the song of the nightingale. The sun is warm, the wind is mild. Willows are green along the shore. Here no bull can hide. What artist can draw that massive head, those majestic horns? It's interesting, I mentioned I, I'm in a life where we raise cows. And um, it's wonderful. There's one bull who's a busy fellow. And he's been dehorned. But the cows mostly have horns. So you gotta watch out for the horns when you go in that pen. The, the, the bull, and you always have to be very respectful of bulls, they're massive and they're incredibly powerful. And they're usually not out to hurt you, but they don't have to be out to hurt you. They can just toss your head and you're gonna be flying through the air. Uh, the cows don't wanna hurt you, but they do wanna protect their babies and they have these long horns and they can casually just walk by you and do you significant damage. So it's interesting how the cows and the bulls, you know, how we usually might look at that. Um, doesn't matter. Keep your eyes open. Be aware. Understand what you're doing. It's not how we ordinarily categorize things. And so this goes on through the 10 ox herding pictures until the last one. Barefoot, I mingle with the people of the world. My clothes are ragged and dust-laden, and I am ever blissful. I have no magic to extend my life. Now before me, the dead trees become alive. I've abandoned the whips and the ropes. The whips and the ropes mean uh, practice, really and our sense of self grabbing onto practice to a, pur to a purpose. So essentially this last picture shows the ox herder entering the marketplace. Daito Roshi would often speak of this as, you know, is this person a, a clown, a fool? 
deeply enlightened, there's no way to know. You can't grab a hold of. Such a person does not retreat from the world, but shares their enlightened existence with everyone around them in quiet and profound ways. Today I return to Cold Mountain where the stream is my pillow, cleansing my ears. How do we return to Cold Mountain? How do we return to our original birthright of wholeness, where we are at ease and present and yet completely sensitive to the cries of the world? and not caught by any of that, and yet wholly involved. How do we live happily in a world that we cannot understand? You cannot truly be who you are until you inhabit your own experience, until you are so intimate with yourself that that intimacy is who you are and how you walk down the street and listen to another and speak your words. And then we begin to experience for ourselves that reality in and of itself weaves itself wholly. And if we stand on our opinions, our sense of a separate self, on our rightness versus wrongness, we place our own self-centered sense of things. We impose them upon reality. And that creates distance, that creates pain, that creates suffering. In a way, this practice is simply about giving up what you are fundamentally not. That's all it is. Letting go of what you are not. We've carefully constructed that. It's a treasure for us. We prize it. We base what we do and say on that. And when I say giving up, I don't necessarily mean abandoning it. It may have value, relative value, that's important in this world and society and in the injustices of it. And yet, not to be stuck there. Cold Mountain holds all of that. And so the question is, do we hold all of that? Are we interested in holding all of that? Because we are, nothing's excluded from that, nothing. And so we start with ourself, to not exclude anything from ourself. Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. 
For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the Mountains and Rivers Order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.